In the spring of 2010, a rumor began circulating around the city of Atlanta and in my native North Georgia that the Atlanta Falcons team owner, Arthur Blank, wanted a new stadium for his home team. The Georgia Dome, which was only 20 years old, would be demolished and replaced by a state-of-the-art facility that would become the rival of sport entertainment's biggest world and stage. Well, a year later, the proposal came in from the architects. It would be a 70,000-seat stadium. It would have a retractable roof that opened up like wings of a falcon spreading their wings. It would attract a major league soccer team, host multiple Super Bowls, SE College and bowl games would be played there. It would compete as a venue for the FIFA World Cup and would have the largest video board anywhere in the world. It had a nice, cool price tag of $700 million in 2011. What is now the Mercedes-Benz Stadium in Atlanta, Georgia, was finally completed in 2017, and all those promises came true. It has already hosted a Super Bowl. Atlanta United, a professional soccer team and league champion, calls the stadium home. They have tractor pulls and concerts and college football games. In 2020, the NCAA Final Four will be played in that building. It is a technological marvel, but it did not cost $700 million. Double that. Add a little more. $1.6 billion for that stadium in Atlanta, Georgia. For a sports arena, for what has proven to be At best, and God knows because I have given them the best years of my life, a mediocre football team. (laughs) Adam, I'm telling the truth, brother. We're suffering. Well, some of that money came from local taxpayers. Surprise. $700 million to be exact. And there is no way that amount of money is ever going to get back to the city. No way. And there were loans. There were the naming rights that came along with the Mercedes-Benz name. The records are hard to get at. Imagine that we can't find the actual construction records cost. But it looks like they had a billion dollars in the bag. But they were still coming up short. And so Mr. Arthur Blank reached into his considerable fortune, Home Depot stock and all, and footed the bill for the last $700 million himself. Now, I'm not going to hate exclusively on my home state, Mr. Blank, and my home team. There's the MetLife Stadium in New Jersey, $1.5 billion. Yankee Stadium, where the evil empire plays, $1.5 billion. (laughs) AT&T Stadium in Dallas, Texas, $1.1 billion, and Jerry Jones is pissed off about it because he didn't get to spend more money than anybody else. But I'll leave NFL owners alone today. The new Raiders stadium in Las Vegas, when completed, will cost $2.4 billion. The new L.A. Coliseum will cost $2.723 billion upon completion. We have lost our minds. This is a good time to remind you that teachers should make what professional athletes make and professional athletes should make what teachers make. (laughs) 
And our world and democracy and nation would be better for it. Amen and amen. How much is a billion dollars? Let me show you. If you have a stack of $1 bills that's worth $1,000, it's going to be about as high as your cell phone is high. If you have $1 bills stacked up that reach a a million dollars, a million, 358 feet, 30 stories, a lot of money. A billion dollars, $1 bills stacked high, 68 miles in the sky. Here is one more expensive stadium for you, the Roman Colosseum, its remnants anyway. Built of travertine and concrete, it remains to this day, 2,000 years later, the largest amphitheater ever built. It could hold 80,000 spectators. It hosted gladiator games, horse races, plays. The floor could be flooded for mock sea battles. It was a technological marvel of its day, and if it were built today, restoring it to its former glory, the architectural and engineering estimates are that it would cost between 1.5 and 2.5 billion dollars. How did the Romans pay for this thing? Well, they didn't have billionaire team owners. They they could raise taxes, and sometimes they paid for these projects with taxes. But when it came to their, their masterpiece, cornerstone monuments, they used the spoils of war to build these. The Colosseum is the perfect case in point One of the great wonders of the ancient world was built from the destruction of this building. Herod's temple in Jerusalem. Or at least that's a mock-up of the building. The Roman general Vespasian laid siege to Jerusalem in 69 AD. He didn't complete the job. Not because he couldn't do it, but he left the battlefield and returned to Rome where he was crowned emperor of the Roman Empire. His work interrupted, he left his son Titus in charge of destroying Jerusalem, and destroying it he did a year later. He leveled the city, he brought the nation of Israel to its end, at least to its knees, he burned the temple down to the ground. But before he burned it to the ground, he looted it, and he took all the gold and the silver and all the artifacts out of that temple loaded it up on ships and caravans under heavy guard of his legions, and sent all that money back to Rome, where Vespasian constructed the Roman Colosseum from the spoils of the Jewish temple. There was enough money in this building to equal today's count of more than $1 billion. In a church, in a house of worship, in the sanctuary of God. Well, that's all interesting, but what does that have to do with us today? It has everything to do with our Scripture reading this morning. I've been highlighting in the last few weeks major events in the life of Jesus, and we find Him today. It's Monday of Holy Week. The day before, Sunday before, is Palm Sunday. Jesus had entered into Jerusalem, pomp and circumstance, welcomed as that prophet from Nazareth, Some welcomed him truly as the Messiah. Others were just curious about him, but he caused the entire city to be in an uproar. He gets into town. The first thing he does is go straight to this temple. With all of its wealth, all of its glory, he looked around, Mark says. It was late afternoon. He didn't have time to do what he wanted to do. So he went back home to Bethany for the night. 
And the following day, he comes back to town. He heads straight to the temple, a man on a mission, and upon arriving, began to drive out the people buying and selling animals for sacrifices. He knocked over the tables of the money changers. He brought the entire operation to a screeching halt, and he said, my temple will be called a house of prayer for all, all nations, and you have turned it into a den of thieves. The temple was the center of political and religious life in ancient Judaism. It was a combination of the White House, the Capitol, the National Cathedral, and the Federal Reserve all wrapped into one place. And Jesus brought it to a grinding standstill because the establishment established to serve God and to serve people had begun to imprison and chain and abuse people. And it obstructed, controlled, and was attempting to regulate God. Their operation was one of keeping people seeking God and the presence of God separate from each other unless you had the coin to pay. How so? Every male Jew in Jesus' day who was physically able had to go to the temple once a year to do two things. Number one, to pay the temple tax, an annual due to belong to the nation, so to speak. And the second thing, to offer a sacrifice for your sins and the sins of your household. That was required by the religious law. Well, let's get to those things. First, the temple tax. Here is how it went. Let's imagine that we have a friend from Galilee, who travels down to Jerusalem to pay his temple tax. Let's call him Moshe. Moshe from Galilee. Moshe shows up on the temple grounds one day to pay his tax, to make his sacrifice. He waits in this long line to get up onto the temple grounds. He finally gets to the gate, and the attendant is standing there, and the attendant says, how may I help you, as all good customer service representatives do. And Moshe says, well, I'm here to pay my temple tax. And he reaches into his pocket, and he pulls out a Greek drachma, the coin that he would use daily in Galilee. And he hands it to the attendant. The attendant says, huh, you don't have any shekels up there in the Galilee? Well, no, we don't, because the temple has most of the shekels, and it's pretty Greek up there. You know, we trade in Greek money, and this is what I've got. Well, that's all well and good, but it won't work here. You can only pay the temple tax with a Jewish coin, with a shekel. You'll have to go to the money changers. He puts his drachma back in his pocket and goes and gets in another line. I, I, I think I know where this place is. It's a big box store somewhere. So he goes and he gets in another line. He waits and he waits and he waits and he finally gets up to the money changer. He does the same thing. Takes out his little drachma. I'm here to pay my temple tax and they sent me over here because they said I didn't have the right denomination or something. Yeah, we'll exchange it for you. Give me the drachma. Give him a drachma. Where's my shekel? Oh, the exchange rate is another drachma. Really? Really. So he reaches into his pocket, gets his, a second drachma, makes the exchange, finally gets a shekel that he's paid two coins for, and it's only worth one. Goes back and gets in that line. Gets back to the attendant. Now we're talking, come on in. Pays his tax. Now he has this little lamb. He's brought this little lamb. He's raised it himself. He's brought it a hundred miles from the Galilee to the temple. And he gets up finally in, a, in another line. 
to the priest to make the sacrifice. And he says, I've brought my lamb for the forgiveness of my sins and the sins of my household. Priest takes the lamb, like one of those judges at the Westminster Dog Kennel Show. (laughs) He gets done inspecting it. He shoves it back into Moshe's arms and says, not this lamb, it's imperfect. And Moshe's livid now. What are you talking about? This is the most perfect animal you will see all day. I raised it by hand myself just for this occasion. And the priest stiffens his shoulders and says, are you going to defy God's anointed priest? Moshe slinks away, and now he has to go exchange his animal. So he gets in another line. He waits. He finally gets up to this line. Here's this animal. The priest says it's not usable. I need to exchange it. And they said, that's fine. They take that animal where it goes. Who knows? And they give him an animal in its place that is so scrawny he thinks it'll die before he can get it back to the priest. And then they charge him three times what it would cost to buy the same animal in the Galilee. And when he offers to pay the money, it's a Roman denarii this time. And guess what they tell him? We only take Jewish shekels. I've just described to you the exact system in play as Jesus arrives on the temple grounds on Monday of Holy Week. He comes into this operation and realizes that that the numbers game and the loan sharks and the mafia have taken over the temple. They are shaking everyone down to get every penny that they can. And in the process, it sends Jesus to a place that nobody in his life had ever seen him go. I've referenced in the past as if Jesus goes all Buford Pusser on him instead of acting like the Pope in the Vatican. He didn't have a big stick of wood. But he made this whip, and he commenced to driving the animals out, turning over the tables, scattering the coins, and that's when he condemns the entire system as thievery. This is supposed to be a house of prayer, and you're robbing these people. Eighty percent of the population in Jesus' day made less than a quarter a day. Twenty-five cents. They're all making minimum wage, and they get to the temple, And this temple that has such an obscene pile of wealth that it stacks 70 miles in the sky and nobody can catch a break just to get in and do what the law says they have to do. And that's just the half of it, really. Because it's not about the money. It's never about the money. What is it about? Power. Control. It's about protecting the status quo. Those at the top wanted to stay at the top. And they were using economics and civil law and religion. Religion to abuse others. They were using God as the whipping stick against an entire society. And that is what angers Jesus so badly. And we can understand his rage when we understand that the temple was not just a place where the Jews thought the presence of God lived. It was the place where they felt that is where you go to get forgiveness. And so when someone starts gaming the system and controlling who gets in and who has to stay outside, whose money is good here and whose is not, 
when you get that kind of system going on, you have an entire religious system that is withholding the forgiveness and grace of God to people that are simply trying to find it and to seek it. Is there a worse religious crime in the world than that? To withhold God from people that are simply seeking His presence. Max Licato summarizes it so well. Reflecting on the temple cleansing by Jesus that Monday morning, he said, it is a sad but true fact. Religion is used to exploit people. And when that happens, people will get hurt. But God will get infuriated. The fury that you see in Jesus this morning in the temple is not just about the money. It's about exploitation. It's about taking advantage of people. Taking advantage of the grace that people are seeking. The injury committed against people, the corruption, the varied and many obstacles laid in the path of those genuinely seeking God. I'd like to tell you that Jesus brought it all to an end that day on the temple grounds. But people are still the same today, aren't they? God help any religious system or church that has the gall to withhold God from people who are seeking grace. Whether it be admission through the doors or how we guard a communion table or how we say this one's in and this one's out. If someone is on the path trying to follow Christ, trying to enter the presence of God, our responsibility as followers of Christ is to throw our arms and doors open to them, not to withhold the grace of God from those who need it the most. The New Testament picks up this theme, and they supplant the religious system altogether. The apostles do. Do you remember these words? Do you not know that you are the temple of God? And the Spirit of God dwells in you, Paul would say. And Peter would echo the same. You are living stones that God is building and building into His spiritual temple. In the New Testament, the walls of institutional faith are torn down. The gatekeepers have been relieved of their responsibility. The need for a guarded, calculating admission system has been superseded by the mediating presence of Christ in all and available to all. So let us spend our energy there, welcoming people into the grace of God, not withholding the grace of God. Some time ago, I read a devotional by Richard Rohr that struck a chord with me because others sent it to me. About eight people sent it to me from across the country. Hey, you might like this. And they were right. He was talking about the prophetic role of Jesus, how Jesus was in the system, but also speaking from outside the system, trying to get people to see a much bigger picture. This is what he writes. There were many times it would have been easier for Jesus to leave the system completely or for him to play the company man and just go along with the game. Jesus understood this. He loved and respected his Jewish religion Yet he pushed the envelope wide open. In my favorite line, Jesus knew the rules. He knew why they existed. And thus he knew how to break them properly. 
for the sake of a larger and more essential value. And what was that value? To keep God free for people. And to keep people free for God. To keep God free for people. His house, His arms, His heart always open. And to keep people free for God. Let us never entrap, manipulate, coerce, shame or withhold grace from those who are on the journey of faith, simply seeking the presence and the kingdom of God.